But it's been a hot couple of months since the Iridori Festival. It's time to talk about something a bit more topical, something I think everyone is looking forward to. It's just a little chain of islands in the middle of the sea. A whole new place for travelers to go explore, look for treasure, uncover secrets, and learn a couple things about some characters along the way. That's right. I'm talking about... Enconomia, baby. Yeah. So... Just jumping into Enconomia, uh, this was one of the larger mid-region updates that they've ever done. Enconomia is essentially like Atlantis in the Genshin universe. It is a sunken city uh, deep beneath the ocean under Watatsumi Island, where there was an ancient civilization of humanity that lived there in the dark until a scholar in their ranks created a giant tower with a light-giving property at the top that he called Helios and eventually became known as the Dainichi Mikoshi. This is also the source of the main puzzles in Enkanomiya, where you can turn the tower on and off to switch between uh effectively the day night cycle exactly you can see some of the buildings or some of the locations restored a little bit to their old forms depending on which time of day it is and there are also certain barriers that will pop up preventing you from going into certain buildings depending on the time of day uh it was a very interesting mechanic and one that i found to be a lot of fun i personally really enjoyed my time in Enkanomiya, and I felt like the event that they had set there that was uh, a little bit like we have Elden Ring at home. And it was an exploration of Enkanomiya again, but it was its separate own instanced version of the map uh, where they introduced a mechanic called the Bokuso box. I forgot it was its own instance. Yeah, it was not a part of the main Enkanomiya map because they, they had to segregate everything off with like that darkness field that was. Uh, all yeah, the, the uh, corrosion sections. I yeah. guess because they knew like somebody would whine about not being able to make normal progress in Enkanomiya, so. Mm-hmm. Which was probably sensible just yeah. because like normal Enkanomiya was pretty sizable, all things consi- considered. So like getting blocked off because there was a limited time event sitting there in the way would probably not have sat well with anybody. Yeah, I think that this was honestly the best solution they could have oh, had to that. right, because they had the the knights, and those were an event-only enemy at that time. Yes, the, the living armors that we later found out were from Conria. Those were the event-specific enemies at that point. They, they really used this event as like a prototype for a lot of further ideas, like introducing the knight characters and seeing how they interacted with normal combat and gameplay. The Bokuso box was essentially a prototype crystal for what ended up being the main traversal item in the chasm it was a really smart way of like looking at these different design elements that they wanted to carry over into the future part of genshin and just getting to test them out in a controlled sandbox speaking of limited time events and limited time resources and story beats in there hey Hoyo, there are people now with special bugs for their teapots that no one else will ever have unless they played this event yeah, I basically made a point of catching, like, 21 of them just because I realized they were exclusive to the area. Also, Snursons. There were a lot of Sneeple in this one. Uh, yeah. And by a lot, I mean one, which was more than we've ever encountered. Yeah, it was nice to see a Snurson out there, and that was our lovely Shrine Maiden. Um, one of the really fun things about Enkanomiya is that's where they get into comparative mythology, which I love a lot. And... Honestly, they seemed like they had a really fun time drawing parallels between a Greek and Japanese mythoses. Which uh, is pretty bonkers, because that's not a combo we generally see in media. 
Yeah, and it's like, oh, hey, you're right. They both do have kind of localized patron spirits like Kami or like, you know, the various narrades and dryads and stuff. And they both have shrine maidens. They both definitely have <laughs> a tradition of shrine maidens. I never thought about that before. Yeah, and in the instance of specifically Enkanomiya, there's also a lot of dual imagery with snakes because in Greek mythology, snakes are associated with like Apollo and Asclepius. And here in Enkanomiya, it was associated with Oribashi and the Ouroboros, who were both worshipped deities in Enkanomiya. And then it, it, in Inazuma's own mythology, Orobashi kind of does double duty because he's Watatsumi, who is the dragon king who rules over the ocean, but he also plays the role of Orochi as the great serpent that is slain by the thunder god Susanoo, in this case, Raiden. Yeah, yeah. And th there's also even a bit of a threefer, too, given that uh, snakes are hugely important in Greek Gnosticism, as well as certain forms of Gnostic Christianity, meaning that there's just a nice little intersection of a couple of different mythological serpents. In the, I believe in the Enkonomia lore books is where they talk about the profane serpent. I, I think that loops back into Gnosticism, and it's definitely something that's mentioned in the Battle Pass story that I always skip. About the, um, was it the scholar Abrax? Yes. <laughs> so there's a Gnostic deity named Abraxas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. Oh. The the. The, there's like some etymology bit about how the numerical value of Greek letters, which is 365, like huh. days of the year. And That's the crazy because I knew Abraxas as the name of one of Helios's horses. I assumed that uh, because he was the guy involved with the Dainichi Mikoshi, that that was just like a reference to Helios. But knowing that Mihoyo freaking loves mythology, it's probably all relevant. What I think is interesting is that, like, the more you go underground and you physically approach the outer threshold of the world, everything sort of begins to blend together, like, from a mythological standpoint. It's no longer, like, this is only the land of Japanese-inspired culture. Like, this is an older culture that really encompasses a whole lot more. Oh, right. And while we're talking about comparative mythology, uh, you can add Tengu to that equation because due to a basically a Chinese-Japanese lingual pun, Mihoyo has conflated Tengu with world traveling. Uh, for whatever reason, the Japanese word Tengu, referring to this crow goblin rapscallion, comes from the Chinese word Tiengo, which means... Um, heavenly dog this has literally nothing to do with japanese tengu it's just a, a completely different mythical being that happens to share the name it is a cosmic dog they're associated with like meteors comets maybe sunspots but things in the sky in genshin the meteor or the falling star is associated with the traveler and their ability to hop worlds so all of that loops back into the Tengu of Genshin are world hoppers. <laughs> and that's why you can read really weird stories in Inazuma about Tengu isekaiing themselves all over the place and just having a bang up old time. Quick poll, do you think Kujosara would fare better or worse if she was isekai'd? 
Oh, so, so much worse. I think <laughs> she would just kind of like dry up and die because she just wants to help the Shogun. I feel like she would get her hands on at least one golf cart, which is a net positive for her. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to feckin' that one. <laughs> Well, and that, that actually is a great lead-in to kind of the biggest reveal of Enconomia. 365 days in a year in a society that was aware of and worshipped the goddess of time, Ishtaroth. Which, holy shit, all that connects really nicely. <laughs> we go from, hey, here's one of the gods who was vanquished in the Archon War, and these are the people that he left behind. But then that also falls on top of, hey, it turns out this god blew open the entire inner workings of the whole setting of Tavat by reading a big no-no book that reveals that Celestia came in and fucked everything up. Yeah, this is where we get the information reveal that Celestia, the the heavens above, the heavenly principles, are an outside invading force to Tevat. They are not native to Tevat. They showed up, conquered the world, and then forced their system on the peoples here. And and even then, there's references within some of the books that you find in Enconomia to, like, wars going on between themselves, because there's a reference to uh, the first throne and the second throne, and potentially conflict between those two factions before the passing over of Celestia's command. Oh, so the first throne, because I know the first throne is, like, the primordial one. Yes. Uh, the one that I'm assuming is the Genshin. <laughs> So the second throne was not Celestia? The, the second throne is still Celestia. It's like a handover of leadership, it sounds like, though. Because it, it mentions in one of the books... I thought the Primordial was the one that was there before Celestia. Based on the reading of the books, it sounds like the Primordial one came with Celestia. Mm. I, I think the second throne is the one that implemented the Archon system. The story, as I understand it from doing all the reading and the story quest in Enconomia, is the Primordial One and Celestia came in, they kind of remade parts of the world, they seeded it with humanity, and they were very responsive and benevolent gods. And then at some point, there was a second throne, a second invasion or, or group oh of Oh my god, sorry. <laughs> I just connected. That's like Greek mythology, too. It is. It's the Titanomachy. It's the Titanomachy. Yeah. Hey, fun oh, fact, and something that I didn't really know until I read Bullfinch's, uh, humanity under the Titans rule was excellent. The Greek view of the world is like, everything was great until the Olympians took over and they are petty and shitty and that's why our world sucks. So here's the interesting thing, though, is that it's the belief of the scholars that the Primordial One won that war. Hmm. So we don't know at what point something changed over to where it became a second throne in power and implemented the Archon system. But we saw that the world reacted to this turnover in leadership. We saw a, a, just a lot of large, the, the Archon war is also a symptom of it. Yeah. Like what I, what I always assumed were like the gods were the indigenous kind of spiritual beings of this plane of existence. And the Archon war was like, it's musical chairs. We have seven seats, kill each other or fuck off. And the last seven get to be the gods. Something happened in terms of the knowledge that they gained and kept here, because there was a important part in the books where they're talking about finding their way back to the world of light above and the primordial being outlawing anyone who knew the truth from coming back. Mm. And so they were actively prevented from leaving until something happened. It, it, it doesn't say what it is, but they had to have presumably given up that truth or their ability to spread that truth before leaving right which is why 
Orobashi basically made the ultimate sacrifice because he can't unknow that truth, but he needs to get his people out of there mm-hmm. and pays for it with his life and for being put on a suicide mission. The, yeah. They, they sure they sure went for the whole the, a little dabbling of original sin in there too, didn't they? <laughs> a little bit. It was kind of interesting. There's so many mythological connections to Enconomia. I really love it. There, there was also some parallels too, because uh, the idea was that before the primordial one showed up, there were seven elemental dragons uh, that they fought for 40 years. Beating the seven sovereign dragons was like the one of the initial things the primordial one did. But now there also is like a resurgence of them. And from my understanding, Ejdaha might be one of them. It's tough because the English localization, they are not consistent with keywords. Mm. That's something that you would see in like the Dark Souls localization where like it is so dense and the keywords are so subtle. And, you know, who knows how many people are localizing it that they don't really do a great job, like, keeping everyone on the level of what the terminology is for specific things. Like, there was that bit where, like, a bunch of innocuous phrases, it turns out, were localized off of specifically the phrase, the heavenly principles. And then when they realized that, they had to go back and change all the text. Yeah. Uh, I will say there is a hint to this. Um, you're right that the seven primordial sovereigns were defeated by the primordial one. And I think the assumption is that they were killed, but that doesn't mean they're gone because one of the big prophecies of Enconomia was that someday the elemental dragon of water would return. Specifically, they said the water Vishaps have degenerated so much that their sovereign will not be born amongst them. He will be reborn in the form of a human. In fact, our latent sovereign, our sleeping dragon, it's Kokomi. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's Kokomi. Yeah. We know it's Kokomi. Can we talk about the parable of the tree? The one that you said is the Kusanali uh, Jataka. Jataka. Yeah. The parable of the tree is really about Tokoyo Okami, who is the local name for Istaroth. Especially the part where it says, A spirit tree shall take 500 years to grow. Your one thought shall echo through eternity. And in an instant, the new tree spirit was a continuation of the past one. For it is the god of moments who is able to take seeds from this moment into the past and the future. Not only is that the sacred Sakura moment in Mm. A's second character quest, but I believe it also refers to what happened to the traveler on their encounter with the unknown god. The god of moments is able to take seeds from this moment into the past and the future. And specifically, the 500-year interval. I read that as Ishtaroth is the one responsible for the Traveler being displaced in time and put into the situation that they are in the events of the game. I thought the God of Moments might refer to Makoto because she was the God of Transients. Oh, no, they say specifically, they say somewhere else, like Tokoyo Okami, she was every moment. She was the measure of a thousand winds. She was every second of joy. So she is a collection of moments. The God mm-hmm. of Moments is specifically her. The, it just ties back into what we were talking about back in the 2.5 discussion of how like space-time fluidity and thoughts of eternity and transience do put the Raiden sisters' concepts more on the level of what a primordial is dealing with. Turns out a big theme in Inazuma is weird time shit. And they just kind of snuck that one up on us. 
they also do really like their puns. <laughs> because, like, I'm just, just thinking, like, Tokuyo Okami, god of the perpetual night. But if you change one character, it's also distant land over or the world of the dead. Whoa! So, that's a, wow. Okay, didn't know that one. Yeah, that's a bombshell. Yeah, yeah. And also eternity and forever unchanging. <laughs> oh man, so. and that also kind of makes me think of uh, the Mare Javari, which is described as like a dead, windless place. And Istaroth is associated with both time and wind. So all this to say is that I really wish they hadn't done Surumi Island. <laughs> because Surumi, it just feels like it's done such a disservice by Tsurumi existing before it. Mm -hmm. It is the exact same shit, you know, like, you go to an island, there's a weird gimmick, there's time stuff, no one is there, it's haunted by shades, you do puzzles, you see remnants of a previous civilization, you learn some things. It's... The same shit. My sense is that Tsurumi was more personal take on it that allows the player to sort of put a face on the time shenanigans. Essentially, Enkonomiya was the exact opposite approach, whereas rather than sort of narrowing it down to a personal story, they kind of blew it up into something that tells you a lot more about what the setting is, as well as the nature and relationship between the sort of more primordial gods and dragons and the contemporary archons. Yeah, but at the same time, even though they are two different perspectives, it was not a story that needed to be told twice. I mean, yeah. Just because the stories have different goals doesn't necessarily mean one wasn't told worse than the other. I guess they had to set up the ley line thing in order to make A's story land. Besides, Tsurumi is made completely null and void for the simple fact that it does not have our husband, Enjo. <laughs> I think the goal of Surumi, I do not know if China has anything for like a Halloween event. However, they could have looked at like market research and been like, okay, there's like an expectation gotcha game wise of there being some kind of spooky event that's happening in October. And I feel like Surumi was kind of like the halfway point with that. Like, it's only because, like, Dragon Spine is always timed to update around Christmas. And maybe it's like, ideally, we would have these be the Shades and Enkonomiya. We didn't have the time to launch it. No, but no, like, Tsurumi was always in the works. I don't know what I'm saying. Whatever. Enkonomiya is so interesting. I have also just not thought about it since I had to go there. <laughs> yeah, the only reason I have all this knowledge on hand is because I literally played through most of the info dump quests yesterday. The way that Inazuma was rolled out, there was like the rumblings that we were going to get Enkonomiya, which we kind of assumed was just going to be another extension of Inazuma. And thematically it is, but it's also an area that is totally separated from not just Inazuma, but the rest of the game at large. For the most part, you basically have no NPC buddies, playable characters, recognizable NPCs. It's all like kind of a dead world that you're sort of exploring and all of the information that you get. Everything that we just went over and discussed is all given to you, but it's like it's divorced from the rest of the game's lore. And I think that that was really deliberate because they wanted to sort of pepper in the creation myth and kind of give you a better idea of future plot beats based on this really limited information. Like, text is super cheap to put into a game. So this was just a lore dump. Yeah, and they don't want any major characters to know that you know this stuff. They don't even want Dane's leaf. 
there is one last point I'd like to bring up about Enkonomiya. The last part of the books in the Byakuya Koku collection lists a series of names and their Enkonomiya names, their Greek names, and their Watatsumi names, their, their more traditional Japanese names. Uh, so we had Abrax, who became Abaraku, Erebos, who became Eboshi. And interestingly enough, we had a name listed that we didn't see anywhere in Enkonomiya or referenced in Teyvat, which was Eris. Uh... Eris, who became Arisu. I mean, Beef, you, you're the one that fucking broke this story to us. Please finish this sentence. Hey, y'all. Do you know what the golden apple is? <laughs> Do you know whose apple that is? Arisu becomes Alice in a more anglicized reading of that name. We have evidence of Alice being a literal centuries or possibly millennia's old being who is kind of indicated to be exceedingly powerful compared to the average mortal and even comparable to gods and archons in this world. The god of chaos, she regularly manipulates the golden apple archipelago. For those who are not as familiar with Greek mythology, Eris is known for carrying a golden apple that she would use to sow chaos. Uh, I believe the famous story is that she was not invited to a god's wedding and literally beamed the bride in the head with her golden apple upon arrival. And also, the, the thing was, like, she said, here, this is for the most beautiful. And of course, it turned into a bloodbath. It was a whole thing. They made a war about it in Troy, which isn't here anymore because they lost it. It's also worth noting that Alice's power levels are so great that not only do we know that she's a dimension-hopping troll and introduced the horrid concept of idols to Barbara, an innocent soul, but Alice is the second character to actually take on a narration role, and that was during Aloy's character trailer. My assumption was because they did not want Dainsleaf narrating that trailer to avoid any kind of tonal breaks, but... Aloy's trailer is narrated from the perspective of Alice. And both are implied to be from other worlds, or at least world travelers in this regard. So we, we are seeing a very interesting connection here with um, not just the Genshin like universe origins and powerful beings within it, but possibly links to other worlds via Alice and the invasion of Celestia. I'm so done with Enkonomiya, guys. We have to talk about the castle. You're, all right. 